All your favorite CBC podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update. This is a CBC Podcast. So how about this for a story? Lakeisha Benjamin is one of the greatest jazz musicians in the world. She's driving home overnight from a gig. She blinks and she wakes up in the hospital. There's been a horrific accident and she doesn't know whether she'll ever get to play music again. Weeks later, she's back on stage, and now she has a new album. You gotta hear this story. It's coming up. Plus, when you write a memoir about your family and your family is still alive, what does that do for your relationship afterwards? Lindsay Wong is here to talk about her new collection of short stories, but she'll tell you about writing about her family, then walking into a room and noticing they all stop talking now when she's around. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So let me just set up the stakes of this story first. Lakeisha Benjamin is one of the greatest jazz saxophonists in the world right now. Here's just a little bit of what she sounds like. It's worth mentioning, too, that Lakeisha's really well-known outside the world of jazz. Like, she's played with Missy Elliott and Prince and Stevie Wonder, and she's going to tell you incredible stories today about each of those people. But here's what happened. She had her album launch party in March. The next day, the world shuts down because of the pandemic. A year or so later, she gets to tour the album. She gets to promote it. And then one night, driving back from a gig in Cleveland, her car slides off the highway. It crashes into a wooded area. Lakeisha suffers multiple massive injuries. She nearly dies. And there's been significant damage to her jaw. When you're a jazz saxophonist, when you're a saxophonist, when you make your life like on your embouchure, like with your mouth that way, damage to your jaw can threaten your entire career. She'll tell you that somehow weeks later, she's back on stage. And I'll add, somehow, she has a brand new album out that's, that's inspired by what she went through. Lakeisha Benjamin is one of the best storytellers we've ever had on the show. I've been looking forward to you hearing this conversation. Here's my chat with Lakeisha Benjamin. How are you? I'm doing great. I loved the knowing laugh I heard over Zoom when I said she had her album launch party in March of 2020. <laughs> yeah, totally. It was uh, devastating. <laughs> we were going to do two nights of a CD release at Jazz Lincoln Center. So the first one happened on March 11th. We almost died on that one, boy. And right after the set, they told us that the NBA had shut down and that Mario uh, Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, was thinking about shutting down the city. So I woke up the next morning and Lincoln Center called my manager and said, do not come. New York City is actually under shelter. So the the tour is out. Then you finally get to tour the record. Um, I think we should probably start here with this, and it's only as much as you want to tell me. Um, take take me back to that night. What do you remember? Uh, I remember a lot coming up to it. We had just played at the Tri C Jazz Fest, and actually, I Samara Joy played first before me. I performed. Everything was great, and then I took a nap, and then I said I would drive back to New York, which is about a six seven hour drive. So I took that drive. And then that's when things were crazy. I started listening to like a Kenny Garrett CD. And in the process of listening to that CD, the sun was rising. I thought it was so beautiful. And then the next thing I remember is uh, a tall guy dragging me through the mud. It was blood all over me. And he's just dragging me through the mud saying, you're going to be all right. You'll be all right. And I had no idea what was going on. No idea what was happening. And then I remember like he positioned me up into a tree. And I still was kind of in and out of consciousness into not knowing what's going on. And then suddenly I felt like I had a dream and I was like, I think I've been in a car accident. The next thing I remember is in the ambulance. They were like cutting my stuff off, telling me, hurry up, hurry up. The hospital is an hour away. I passed out again. And the next thing I remember is being like on an operating table. That was the only room they had. It was like a trauma center. And because everything was so filled with COVID, that's the only room they had for people that had any issues. You don't have any 
recollection of the crash itself. It, like literally, it's like you blinked and you were. Being it it came back later, so I don't know how the accident started. I know that I was listening to this song, and then I know I remember the car shaking uncontrollably. I remember, like, I guess I I saw pink everywhere, but I guess I have pink airbags. I remember feeling an immense amount of pain, and then I remember, you know, how your brain just slows down, and I remember thinking, "Oh my God, I'm in a car accident," and then I, the next thought I had was, "Oh my God, is this how I die?" And yeah. then it was like I remember just kind of a big boom, like a slam, which I later found out was that drainage ditch. And that, then the next thing you know, someone is dragging me through the woods. <laughs> For people who don't know who are listening to this, I mean, how bad were your injuries? I had three ribs that I broke. My scapula, which is the top portion of your shoulder, that was completely broken in half. My jaw started out, which I thought was dislocated. But then once we had the x-rays, it was fractured completely. So it was like hanging off. I had severe neurological damages. So like even talking to people, I couldn't process what you were saying or how you were saying it to me. So I had rehab for that. It, it just was a, a long process. It wasn't until the beginning of this year that I was able to raise my right arm all the way. How quickly afterwards were you playing saxophone again? That's where it gets interesting. So uh, the next week I was supposed to play at the Pittsburgh Jazz Festival. And, you know, Tang was playing before us. Robbie Coltrane was playing, Branford. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the best opportunity in my life. And everybody was like, how are you going to play? You don't have a jaw. So I called one of my old middle school teachers and I was like, can you drive me over there? And he's like, what are you going to do? I was like, I'll just stand on the stage and I'll try to play. If God allows me to play, then I'll play. And then if I don't, if I can't play, at least they know that I'm an artist of my word and I showed up and I tried my best. So we get there. I hadn't played the entire week. And in the sound check, I tried to play. So I was able to like, I guess, hold my mouth down a certain way where it could close <laughs> and I could get a sound. It was, uh, I would say, excruciating. But we, we got through the show and then, you know, I had to take another three weeks off and then we went on a month and a half tour in Europe. Were you in excruciating pain for that whole month and a half? The whole time. I had the tour manager. He was carrying me on the planes. He was carrying me onto the trains. He was like helping me carry all my stuff to get on the stage, setting up my saxophone for me. Sometimes I would have to get off stage because it was like I was in tears playing. He's like holding ice to my face. So it was, it was intense, but I think because I was playing the Coltrane music, I was able to, I guess I feel, feel free on stage and feel like that healing kind of vibration. I think if I was playing something else, I may not have made it. <laughs> So by playing the Coltrane's music, you were able to use some of the pain you were feeling. You were able to use some of the frustration you were feeling, some of the physical pain you were feeling, or it was alleviated by the music you were playing? I, th I think it was alleviated. I think I was able to, because I asked myself, how would I play with that jaw like that? And I didn't cause any extra injuries. I was worried also that I would injure myself more. So I was able to play, you know, 90-minute sets at, like, headline festivals. My name is Lakeisha Benjamin on saxophone. Thank you so much. You've been an amazing audience. And still, I think it's because of the music I was playing, because of my belief in God, because of, I guess, the purpose of the CD and the, and the mission and just, you know, audiences hadn't seen live music in so long. And just that interaction we had together and just sharing that together. That's the only thing I can believe as to how I was able to overcome that. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how the story you just told us inspired the record we're going to talk about. I think I was feeling that as a just as human beings, we all had just gone through so much of a trauma, like so many jazz musicians had died, so many of our loved ones, our friends and living in that fear all that time that my story of just almost, I felt like I died in that accident and had to come back to life. <laughs> so I, that's why I picked the name Phoenix because that's such a beautiful healing bird and it has to just burst into flames and to come back even better. So I just felt like from what my experience was, for what society's experienced going through this pandemic and everything, and just for all the artists out there that have to go through life, and we hear more no's than yes. We have to keep reinventing ourselves, rebranding ourselves, keep believing in ourselves, keep inspiring ourselves. So I just wanted to spread that story of just what, it's, what it means and how important it is to just humanity to be resilient. 
I feel like I, it would be um, it would be not just incorrect, but like maybe a bit of a, a tragedy if people were listening to this interview so far and heard heard us talking about this record, and they thought that this record was about your crash or about you coming back from that crash because it's about so much more. I mean, it's a, totally. it's, it's about that, but it's also, as you say, about the people we've lost. It's about losing family. It's also about um, it's it's about issues that affect black lives. It's it's about issues that affect uh, working class lives, poor people's lives. Can you can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I just felt like I wanted to highlight the human experience. Like I'm suffering from that tragedy of the accident. So yeah, that's a personalized thing. But how many other people are waking up to ambulance sounds and they've lost their child? How many people are waking up and they sent their kids to school and now there's a school shooting and they're dead? How many people are waking up and they sent their son to get some milk and now there's a police violence thing and they're gone? So I just felt like in each person's life, we're all having these tragedies and all these things. And it's not the world we want to live in. It's not how we want to be. So I wanted to let people know that they're seen. Their pain is seen. And we can take that pain and, and, and celebrate it in a different kind of way. We can tr- inspire change and we can inspire healing through song you know like i don't i didn't want the songs to feel like a a down tempo kind of thing i wanted everybody to feel how joyous things could be <laughs> let me reintroduce you here uh my guest is lakeisha benjamin we're talking about her new album phoenix um i want to talk a little bit about um collaboration so like you work with some pretty amazing talent on this record i mean there's wayne shorter's on this diane reeves is on this patrice russian's on this i know part of this is that you want to highlight people sort of give them their flowers while they're still around right yeah i feel like for the past two cds i've been highlighting work of giving flowers of course to the elders that have been here and the things they have said and done and appreciating them now and kind of just highlighting how jazz works it goes generation to generation passed down directly so i'm trying to get the listener to see that process through sound but i'm also trying to highlight people that have inspired me and made change and they've had their own stories of breaking through boundaries angela davis patrice russian you know a lot of people wouldn't even know she's a jazz pianist they just know the r&b patrice they don't know that she teaches in schools and gives back that kind of way a lot of people wouldn't know who terry lynn carrington is so i wanted to highlight while you can still be at that level of fame there's still more people that can be introduced to you and there's still more story to be told and you know, looking at these women, this is something that's inspired me to be the person I am. Come on, is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. It's your I heard this great story about you. I was hoping I'm going to be able to get you to tell about how you ended up working with Missy, Missy Elliott, which was like you were walking to your car and you thought you were being <laughs> catcalled or something like that. What, what, what's the story? Yeah, totally. I was outside, if you know New York, on West 4th in front of the Blue Note. And across the street is a place called the Village Underground, which is they had like every night killing R&B bands. And I was walking out of the Blue Note and walking by and I hear somebody saying, hey, yo, girl with the sax. I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> you know, I already know what that in New York. I already know what that means. Yeah. So I keep walking faster. And yeah. finally, he comes up to me and he's like, hey, you know, you know, I thought it was a hustle. He's like, yeah, I'm the drummer with Missy Elliott and I want to put you on. We having a rehearsal tomorrow. I was like, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm a jazz player. He's like, we take all players. So I was just thinking, like, this is such a scam. So he gave me the number, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'll call you tomorrow. He said, I'm going to write down the address. I said, okay, write it down. So the next day I knew, like, there's no way I'm going there at all. It's not going to happen. And uh, somehow around noon, I started thinking it over, thinking it over, and I said, ah, why not? So I go down there, and it's totally just that drummer, a bunch of band, and a guy named Corte, which is Missy's uh, cousin. So I was like, see, I knew it. No Missy Elliott, but the band was killing. So I was like, I'll just vibe and have fun and go home. Eventually, Corte said, do you want to do a show with me? I said, yeah, yeah, let's do the show. He said, you have other horns. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm the boss. I'll get some more horns. So I get everything together. We do this show. Gabrielle Union's there, Terrence Howard, everything. And Missy comes to watch us. And she sees us playing and everything. She goes, hey, is this your, are you in charge of these people? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm the boss. And she said, yeah, yeah, why don't you bring these people by this studio this day? And I want you guys to work on something. I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. These are, these are my, my employees. So that's how it started up. You are, you're man, like, you're really chill for telling me that story. Like, <laughs> you're telling me that, like, when she showed up, like, you were cool, you know, you were playing music, everything was pretty, felt pretty good. You're telling me when, she, when you actually get a look at her, you're not like, holy God, like, holy moly. No, I would say the only time that happened is you would have to pick between Stevie and Prince. Those are the moments where I had, like, a full, oh, my God, and those happened similar ways. I wasn't expecting it, and it totally just, I had a freak show up. That happening. Hold on. What's the story? What's the Prince story? 
I had I was living in LA and I had decided like I'm gonna go sneak into this Prince show and see him for the first time. Where was he playing? He was playing at 3121 in Las Vegas, that club he had. Yeah. So I was like, I'm gonna get a bus ticket, I'm gonna go out there. And at this particular time in my life, we should mention, I had a reputation for jumping on people's stages. So we should just let it know. If you were famous, I was jumping on your stage. With, with, your, with your saxophone? With my sax, full okay. solo. Okay. So I actually get, I find a way to sneak into the club, get in there. I watch like the first couple of songs. I have my sax actually under the stage, kind of where the guitar tech has his stuff. And I'm like, you know, it's already set up. When it's time, I'm going to hop up, play. I only got probably 30 seconds for security comes. And I'll see if he lets me play. So Prince, I'm like, he's, the, he's going to the next song. I'm like, I'm going to do it now. And it's totally like a 45 minute, like him and guitar moment. So I was like, this is not the time. So I kind of, while I was standing there, I looked up and I saw my friend plays trumpet. And I was like, oh my God, let me text him. And like a song later, he texts me back while the horns are off. Yeah, yeah, we're having an after party. So I was like, oh, maybe I don't have to be disrespectful. So I get to the, 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 what do you call it? The bouncer for the after party. I said, oh yeah, I'm friends with him. Let me in. He's like, yeah, yeah, I bet you are. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm friends with him. I can text him right now. He's like, get back. So now I'm like, what am I going to do? So I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to take my saxophone. And in my naiveness, I said, I'm going to run by this guy. And when I run by this guy, he won't be able to catch me. And then I'll start playing and then it can work like the stage. So I start playing, run by this guy. I'm thinking I'm, I'm clear. I'm free now. And then I just feel all the wind in my body sucked out by this guy's arm, <laughs> grabbing me by the waist, squeezing all the air out of my body. <laughs> and I'm like, now I'm making hmm, sounds on the sax. <laughs> so I'm trying to hold on, but he's just too big, much bigger than me. He has me in the air. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a fail. But then somebody started screaming, let that girl play. Hey, get off of her. So I was like thinking like, yeah, get off me. So he, eventually he lets me go. And the band is like, you know, waving at me. Come up here, come up here. And I come up there out of breath. My hair is all, all over the place. And they're like, put a mic there. And they're like, take a solo. And I, I'm like, I don't know what key it is, nothing. I'm just like, go, full throttle, go, 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 go. So I end up uh, playing with them all night. They have a good time. Everything is great. And I'm like, okay, I didn't get to meet Prince, but it was great. You know, no problems. Next day, I finally get back to LA and my boy texts me. He said, uh, Prince is here asking about you. I said, what's he asking about me? He said he stays up all night checking the blogs. He read a blog that you snuck into this joint and made a trouble with the bartender. So they were writing about you in the blog. He's asking me if I know you. I was like, what you going to say? He said, I said, I know you. So that's how I started. <laughs> that's, that's an unbelievable story. Yeah. It was intense. I mean, like I said, the Stevie one is just intense. They, they both, both of those two are my top, like, I can't believe it happened. Do you want to do? Do you want to? Do you want to do the Stevie one? Do you have? Do you want to do it? Yeah, Stevie was in the Obama time period. Okay. So, Obama was playing his inaugural ball. I was going to play there with Regina Bell. So I was already down there. My boy calls me. He says, "Hey, why are you down here? Do you want to?" Maya Angelou is getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. Do you want to play with her? I was like, "Yeah, yeah, let's do it." I'm gonna. I'm. I'm down to honor the Queen. We play this thing. Two hours of funk to the wall. She gets the award. We take pictures with her. I'm thinking that's it, you know, I'm going back to the hotel. A guy comes running in. You guys want to play with Stevie Wonder? I was like, oh, hustle, hustle. I know a hustle. He's like, if you want to play with Stevie Wonder, you have to leave your coats, everything now and run to this other building. I don't know if it's the Commerce Building or Treasury or what it was. And I was like, it's like negative 10 outside. He's like, what do you want to do, Stevie or not? And everybody in the band is like, uh, I don't know. I was like, we need to go. So we run over there, black tie, full gown. Saxophone, saxophone in hand. Saxophone in hand, bass, drumsticks. My man has his keyboard. <laughs> We're running down there. We get into the room. The guy leads us to the stage. He's like, just play a song till Stevie get here. So we're like, okay, let's play something. An hour and a half goes by. I said, I told you this is a hustle. I'm screaming from the sax dance. Awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is not real. So finally, my man, my friend is like, yeah, maybe we should get out of here. And then I kind of look from the side of the stage and I said I know that forehead that's a Stevie <laughs> forehead and he said how you how you know I said because the dreadlocks are pushed back that's a Stevie forehead that's a Stevie Wonder forehead yeah right so on. finally the guy helps him on they give him some kind of award or something they sit him down at the piano so you can't see me out there guys but I'm standing right next to the piano it's me Stevie and I have a wireless mic he starts playing a song with us I don't even remember what it was 
but we, you know, we know Stevie's songs. We play it. We're thinking, yes, we did it. Congratulations, right? His handler's trying to pick him up to leave him. He's like playing more songs. We end up playing like an hour and a half to two hours of Stevie songs in front of that audience the whole time. So I'm thinking like, I'm having the time of my life. Then he goes into all I do. First thing that comes into my head is there's an alto solo. There's an alto solo here. I know there's an alto solo. So I'm thinking, I'm freaking out, but I'm playing the intro with everybody. And I start thinking, you know what? Let me uh, give the piano player the solo. It's his gig. So I look at him. He's looking at me like it's on you. So we're both like, kind of debating this for like however many minutes it takes to get to that solo. And then Stevie's right next to me and he just yells, somebody solo. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I look up at him and he looks at me. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take it. So I, I immediately play the beginning of it. I'm playing the whole record thing. When he gets to the end of the record solo, he yells, keep going. So I keep going. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like an angel in heaven right now with a little liar having the time of my life. You know, we eventually finish the set. After we're all hugging, like, oh my God, this is the best moment of our life. And the handler comes to me and the drummer. He says, Stevie wants to talk to you and the drummer. So I'm immediately thinking, I messed it up. <laughs> we go over there. He wants to take pictures with us. He's giving us hugs, telling us to keep going, keep trying, keep doing what we're doing. He loves how we sound. If you guys mind, you know, give my friend your number. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I give him the number. Next thing you know, a couple months later, their saxophone player has a passport issue. And they call me and say, oh, yeah, can you do some, some gigs in Europe or something? I said, oh, yeah, how long? We don't know. I said, how much? Oh, we can't tell you that yet. I'm like, uh, okay. And then I just <laughs> go out. <laughs> so it's not a good message for the youth out there, but... <laughs> What's what's the most surprising thing about playing with Stevie Wonder? What's something about Stevie Wonder that I wouldn't know? I think everybody knows, but it's it's probably that his songs are so complicated and so accessible to everyone. No one listening to Stevie ever thinks this is such a hard song. They always think this is amazing. But the musicians playing it up there are like, oh my God. You know? Yeah. I know what you mean. It's I love the way you put it, that his music is so complicated and it's so accessible at the same time. Also, I want to point out that in both stories, you thought you were being hustled both times, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, something I'm, I'm learning to deal with, to, to, to believing always that the impossible is possible. I love the way Lakeisha Benjamin tells stories. I love the way she talks about music from people like Stevie Wonder um, and, and folks like Missy Elliott. Coming up on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, John Coltrane, one of the, her biggest influences. So I thought what we could do right now is listen to a little bit of Lakeisha Benjamin paying tribute to John Coltrane. Take a listen to this. Her new album, Phoenix, that is Lakeisha Benjamin and Train. More from Lakeisha in just a bit. Plus, what happens when you write a tell-all memoir about your family and their relationship with mental illness, and then you got to move back in with them? Lindsay Wong has some great stories about that coming up. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl! 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. So where we are right now is we're in the middle of my conversation with the jazz saxophonist Lakeisha Benjamin. We're talking about her new album, Phoenix, which was largely inspired by a car crash she was in a little while back. The reason I say largely is because it's about a lot more than that, and that's what we're going to focus on here. It's an album about issues surrounding black lives, around you know working-class lives, about you know all of our lives right now in this sort of modern era. And I wanted to play Lakeisha some music by an artist that I know was an influence on her, not just musically, but also like in the way that she uses jazz to talk about social issues. Take a listen to this. Lakeisha, can you tell us what we're listening to and uh, tell us a little bit, um, tell us what we're listening to and tell us maybe a little bit about what goes through your mind when you hear it. Uh, We're listening to John Coltrane's version of Alabama. And it's about, um, I can't remember the year, something 60s, there was a church bombing and five little girls just happened to go down to the basement, probably use the bathroom, do their hair, and the bomb went off. So four little girls were killed and one survived, but she was severely maimed. So John Coltrane wrote this song to highlight the injustices that were happening in the South with the Klan and during that civil rights movement, just the struggle for equality. How much does that legacy of John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane, the ability to speak about moments like this, such tragedies like this, such like atrocities like this, in, in the context of jazz, like how, how much are you informed by their legacy? Um, I, I believe it's artist's job to reflect the times. So if, you're, if your work is not reflecting the human experience, then how can you be touching real humans? So I think it's inspiring to me to, that I can hear this song and, and transport myself back and hear what's going on, hear what he was feeling, hear what he's, he's a reflection of what many people were feeling. And I wouldn't be able to get that if he wasn't able to articulate and express what is happening in his direct surroundings. Is jazz uniquely suited, maybe because of you know the origins of who created the genre, in addition to, do, to to personal expression, to getting across social justice, black life injustice towards towards black folks, and 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 a struggle like is is jazz also uniquely suited for that? I wouldn't say uniquely. I think all black music is is a reflection of that. But I will say that uh, it has the most room for the expression of it. You know what I mean? It has the most space for you to express yourself through song, through words, through rhythm. And it's the closest genre of all the art forms. If you go hip hop, of course, you could just rap about it, right? But in jazz, it's the the next music from slavery. <laughs> you know, you have slaves, you have the, 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 the spirituals, the work songs in the field. And those all directly went to the blues and then next to jazz. So it's the closest art form besides blues that is a direct derivative of the people that were directly affected. Like all of us are generations of oppression. But that roots, and when you're learning the tradition of jazz, you're learning directly what it felt like to be the next generation to be able to play a drum. You know, so I think that's that's powerful if you had a whole people that expressed themselves through song and then that was taken away for a long time and then brought back in a different variation. Jazz is, you can't play jazz if you can't play blues. You know, you can play blues better and jazz better if you can feel holler. So I just think it's unique to that expression. You can rap without being able to feel holler, but you're so much better if you could. <laughs> I mean, a point I had never thought of that before, like the, the closeness in like chron- chronology to, sla- yeah. to, to slavery, you know? 
And when you are playing, when you are a descendant of that music, like when you are playing that that music, you are informed, of course, by by that time and by those early days of jazz. Of course. I mean, it sounds so far away, but I mean, there's people in my family I know that were still sharecroppers. Yeah. And I'm from New York. So that that, that means they still had to be in the South. You had to skip back a couple of generations. So I think it's I think it's powerful stuff. You know, I think whenever you study the tradition of a people, you really get to the expression of things. Let's go out on a, on a piece of music of yours. Take a listen to this. Lakeisha, I love this piece of music. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about it, um, where, where it came from. I mean, let's just start with what it's called. Well, it's called Rebirth. And uh, I came up with the song just to, unlike Phoenix, to show the dying, I just wanted to show what it's like to be like moving through life, moving through society and evolving intellectually, evolving spiritually, evolving mentally. And, and, you know, and I use the band as a way to show these are your friends and your peers that you're coming up with. So the song starts in kind of a somber way, and I just wanted to show how it can open up like a flower, just when you become your full, involved self, just what that can look like and feel like, that freedom. Am I right to assume that also like when you rely on one another, the reason it's with the band is because you can, totally. you can, you can experience that full blossoming of who you actually are by relying totally. on other people. It wouldn't be possible without them. So I really, I thank you for playing that, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to play, we're going to play more of it. Listen, I want to thank you for your, your music. I just want to thank you for telling like some of the best stories I've ever heard on this show in my entire life. Um, and also talking about something I know that that's not always easy. Uh, a couple of things that are not always easy to talk about. I'm, I'm grateful to you. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. Keisha Benjamin and Rebirth. Before that, you heard my conversation with jazz saxophonist and someone who I think if she wanted to could rebrand as like professional storyteller. Like I'd go, I'd go to like a theater just to hear her watch, just to hear her tell stories. Lakeisha Benjamin's album Phoenix is out now. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I want to talk about Lindsay Wong's first book before we talk about uh, her second book. Her first book was a memoir. It was called The Woo Woo, and The Woo Woo is the name for the ghosts that Lindsay's family blames for what is actually mental illness and trauma. And it was a book that was really honest about inherited trauma. It was really honest about, like, why we don't talk about mental illness and what happens to a family when you don't talk about mental illness. It was also very, very funny. So Lindsay's new book is a collection of short stories. It's called Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality. The best way I can describe it is that it's a lot of stories about Chinese immigrant women who once they die really start to let loose. But also there's some connective tissue between the two books because I think they ask the question, what are we really talking about when we talk about ghosts? Just a heads up, this conversation does touch on mental illness and suicide. Um, but we start out talking about career tests, strangely enough. Here's my conversation with Lindsay Wong. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm happy to have you. How are you doing? I'm alive. Alive. You know, that's yeah. the best we can hope for. Mm -hmm. I heard a story that when you were in school, you took a, like a career test. Yeah. And what did it say? Oh, I was told to be a comedian. Okay. Um, a tattoo artist. Uh -huh. That was number two. And the third was a mortician. A mortician. Yeah, a mortician. They said I would be really good at it. Um, I don't know. Maybe I would. 
Why do you think they thought you'd be a good mortician? Maybe they thought I'd be good with dead people, or I had no social skills. Exactly. Oh, I, I could understand the first two, right? Because mm-hmm. you're really funny, and in the, in, in the books are really funny. So comedian makes sense to me. You have tattoos, so maybe mm-hmm. I can understand tattoo artists. Mortician, though. Was there something, like, dark about you back then? Was there something... I don't know. They kind of give you like a personality test in terms of like, like who do you work well with? And they're like, well, you'll work well with dead people. <laughs> they don't talk back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who do you, who do you work well with? People who can't respond. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, people who don't have any. That has been, so what, what did you make of that at the time? And I was like, well, maybe that could work. They can't complain, right? If you do a bad job. Yeah. Yeah. But you never pursued it. No, no. I became a writer instead. Probably a, a, a good idea. Answer me something. I mentioned this in the in the introduction. Is there something about the reason that ghosts keep coming up through through your work? Yeah, I just think that you know, growing up with ghosts, like my family always talked about them. They're always afraid of ghosts, right? And you know, and the woo woo is like mental illness. And my mother to this day is always like, "Oh, be you should be aware of this ghost or that ghost." And I'm like, "No, it's fine. You know, I'm not going to be you know possessed by a ghost." Um, and so it's, I've always thought about ghosts like as around me. Um, so I've always been interested in writing about them. Right. Yeah. For, for people who don't know you as well and people who didn't read the woo-woo, can you, can you give us a little bit of background on like what your life was like growing up? Mm-hmm. So um, my family, um, they're a traditional Chinese family. They don't believe in mental illness at all. They, don't, they think ghosts cause everything from demonic possession to cancer to illness. And, and so growing up, it was very much, you know, ghosts do this, ghosts do that. Um, be afraid of the woo-woo. How does, how does that affect you? It made me afraid, I think growing up um, and not really wanting or knowing about mental illness until, you know, I went to university and they were like, you know, um, you're really weird, Lindsay. And I'm like, okay, well, why am I weird? And then, you know, we would just have these conversations and creative writing workshops um, and people were like, have you, you know, thought about getting therapy? Have you talked to a psychiatrist? And I think that was, you know, when you first leave your family, you start to think about, you know, well, mental illness exists. You knew you were a little bit strange when you were in school. Yeah. And then, I blame my classmates. Yeah. yeah. And, but, then, and then you go to school, and, but you're kind of told or the family doesn't really look into mm-hmm. mental illness or trauma. Yeah. And so I think that sort of became like a way for me to examine my upbringing. Um, I guess some people would say, you know, it's borderline abusive. It's borderline, you know, insane. But, you know, it was – really just like what I knew growing up. And then in 2018, my aunt took the city of Vancouver hostage by trying to jump off a bridge. And that was sort of like the first time I had really thought about, okay, this is mental illness. This is what happens when we have inherited trauma and it manifests itself. How did you, when you started to like look back on that time to write the woo-woo, how did you end up feeling about the way that your family talked about ghosts as sort of a coping mechanism for really talking about mental illness? Um, I think I started to think about, you know, where they'd come from in terms of, you know, you know their upbringing, how they had come from Hong Kong and China. Um, and I began to really see them as people. Um, you know, we don't always see eye to eye, but that's how they exist, right? And what they know of the world. Um, to this day, we don't even talk about the woo-woo. We don't talk about the book. Um, I'm sure they've read it or they know about it, but, you know, it's, it's hard, I think, right? You, you, you were sort of looking back and going like, well, this is probably not great, the idea mm-hmm. that they would talk about ghosts and the woo-woo instead of talking about stuff like depression or stuff like anxiety or stuff like, you know, schizophrenia or like any, mm-hmm. sort, of, any sort of mental health thing. And then something made you – when you started to reflect on that and you started to look a little bit at their upbringing and how they came up, you were a little bit more forgiving. Like you were a little you, – you saw them a little bit more as just people just trying to deal with the circumstances they were given. Is, is that right? That's true. Yeah. I was, I think, very angry at them growing up. Um, and then it's really when you write a memoir, when you're forced to examine you know, who you are in relation to your family, that's when you start to, I think, forgive people or at least understand who they are. What was it that you learned about their upbringing that made you come – come to that feeling? Um, I think they had a, my mom especially had a really hard childhood growing up. Um, she had, you know, a schizophrenic grandmother. Uh, she had, you know, seven siblings. They grew up with poverty. Um, and then they came to Canada um, and they had to learn a new language, right? And they didn't always have access to um, mental health professionals. It, it's easy in that stage to, 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 if you don't 
aren't aware to attribute it to something more supernatural coming into the house. Mm-hmm, exactly. And they're very insular, I think. So for them, it was like the woo-woo was a way to survive it all. I heard a story that when the woo-woo came out, you you took your mom back to Hong Kong. Is that right? Well, they um, we went to Hong Kong 2019. Yeah. Um, I jokingly say like maybe they were like afraid people would ask them about the book. So we went to, um, I guess, hide in Hong Kong, escape with Canada <laughs> Reads. All right, it was my first time back. And, you know, we just ate a lot of food and I met people that were related to me. And it was it was a really, um, I guess, interesting experience to see them and see their villages, which had been like bulldozed. Yeah, there was like a graveyard to the school and there was like these weird graves sticking out. And my mom would say like, oh, yeah, we'd play with bones when we were children. And then she was just like not say anything. And I'm like, that's creepy and weird. And I think that's probably, you know, what, you know, started it all, right? This fear, right? And then the way the fear manifests itself in my family. Help me, help, me, help me understand that better. Like that started it all. That's the fear. I think so because she'd always talk about like having to walk to school and, and all the graves and the bones and being afraid all the time, right? And I think not understanding her mother who had schizophrenia who would probably talk to her about ghosts, right, and seeing things that weren't there. Um, and there was like no word for schizophrenia, right? Um, I don't think there's like a word for mental illness in Chinese. So um, ghosts were used to explain everything. And I think it's a fear that has like manifested itself in in my mother and, and the family. How many, when you wrote the woo-woo, how many people did you think were going to read it? Oh gosh, I thought only five people would read it, to be honest, um, including my agent. I thought no one would read it. No one would care. I would get this nice book to put on my bookshelf and I would never have to talk about it again. Or, um, you know, I never thought anyone would care really. You just sit down and you're like, it's for myself, right? And and I think um, when my agent was shopping it around, we didn't have much of a response from publishers. People were like, this is too weird. It's too dark. Um, and so I just thought, you know, there's no audience for this book. Right. And then when do you find out that it has taken off? Um, I guess it was nominated for the Hillary Weston Prize. Um, and, and then Canada Reads, and then you're like, oh, okay, more than five people are going to read it. People are emailing me. They're asking me questions. And all of a sudden, you know, um, I have, you know, people at, wanting me to read from my book. What do you do? Do you hide away? Do you? I would like to hide away. I would like to, like, just hide in my apartment and lie in bed and, and smoke weed. Um, and, of course, you know, you sound ungrateful if you say, like, I wish I, you know, I could hide, but it's it's a different ordeal, I think. Did you find a bit of peace with it eventually? Um, I'm still terrified of um, talking about my work and, and you know, doing media promotion. I'm, I'm like, terrified, but I'm going to do it. You're doing great. I'm, I'm okay. This is going well. I'm, sur- I'm surviving. I haven't fallen apart yet. I haven't fallen apart yet is, I'll be honest with you, a really good feedback to get halfway through an interview. My name's Tom Power. You're listening to Q, and you're hearing my conversation with the Canadian author, Lindsay Wong. We've been talking about uh, her uh, memoir, The Woo Woo, and like what happens when you write a book about your family that you think five people are going to read and it becomes a massive bestseller. Lindsay has a new book. It's called Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality. It's a collection of short stories. So the thing you're going to hear right now is uh, kind of me talking to Lindsay uh, about getting her to read one of those stories. How about this? We'll make things easy on you. Can I get you to read a little bit from one of my favorite stories in the book? Sure. This is from, this is from the, uh, the Noodly Delight. T- tell me a little bit about the story before we hear a little bit of it. Okay. Well, um, the Noodly Delight is about a grandmother who comes back from the dead to protect her grandchildren from racist schoolyard bullies. Um, I think, you know, having a family member come back from the dead is a, pretty much a horror story in itself. Like, I would not want my grandmother or my mother to come back. Go ahead. Yeah. In our living room, Grandmama Wu has yet to become a ghost or zombie. Shithead, she shouts, waving a molding arm at me. Asshole. A ghost, I feel, wouldn't be able to call her oldest grandkids so many horrendous names. A zombie would probably just devour her grandchildren without parental consent. My little brother Ernie, whose cranium is like a GMO watermelon on account of him having too much brain sap, tries to hug her and she lets him. She bends her head, nibbles on Ernie's greasy hair like a bunny, spits out dandruff. Delicious, she announces, and lets out a wet, unholy belch. 
Talk to me a little bit more about the, the story and where this might have come from. Yeah, I was just thinking about my own grandmother. Um, she passed away during COVID um, when we, in 2020. She was always this frightening figure for us. Um, she had um, schizophrenia um, and the family always just said, stay away from her. She's frightening. Um, you know, if you show a sign of weakness, you're going to turn out to be like her. Um, and so... Hold on. If you, if you show a sign of weakness... Yeah. So they believe that if you cry, a ghost will possess you if you're emotionally weak. Um, so that was something, you know, we grew up thinking about, right? We just blamed her own illness on her. On her. Um, and so... I thought about it and I imagined, you know, as a child being scared of this figure. Um, and I thought, what if she came back from the dead? But at the same time, you know, family, even though they scream at you, they still love you. Like Asian culture, like we yell, they yell at you all the time. Um, but I'm sure, you know, they would come back um, from the dead if I needed help. Yeah. I mean, the, the first part of the story is the, your, the, the grandmother, I should say. Like yelling and and being quite obnoxious and, mm-hmm. and telling them off and um, sort of rejecting who they are yeah. and, and and all that, and then once it becomes time to protect them, once these kind of racist bullies come around, mm-hmm. she s- snaps into attention yeah. and she and she protects them. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the symbolic of sort of that dichotomy there between how much we love somebody, even though we might yell at them and flip out at them. Oh, yeah. The bonds of family, right? I've never seen ghosts depicted this way either. You know, like I think I'm so used to ghosts being wispy and like the Casper-y. Yeah, I just think that, you know, Chinese ghosts, they would be in some kind of form, right? They wouldn't be like whispery and Casper-y. They would be able to, you know, do things, right? And terrorize family members. I'm just thinking about my own family and how... Um, forceful they are in my life. Um, I'm sure if they came back, they wouldn't be passive. They would probably be like Grandmama Wu. Um, and also thinking, um, my family's always making jokes about death, right? There's always talking about, oh, we're going to pick out our coffins. Do you want to like get a gravesite beside us? And I'm like, no, I don't want to spend eternity with you. Um, that's to my mom, right? It's a terrible idea. Um, and so Plus, we have ancestor worship in um, Chinese culture. So we're always burning paper money, paper houses to the dead. So the idea that, you know, the dead, they're very much like us. They're, you know, they have the same wants and needs as us. Where do you think your dark sense of humor comes from? I think um, it's always been something for me to survive. Like Joan Didion, she said we need stories, you know, to tell us, to help us live. Um, So for me... Laughing at something has always been a way to get through something horrible. Um, when I was diagnosed with a neurological condition, um, they told me, like, you may not be able to read. You may not be able to write. Um, and at t- that time, I was devastated. Um, and so for me, for, to look back at it and to see that absurdity in that situation, um, it was something that could help me get through um, whatever it was I was going through or writing, right? If my, even when I'm thinking, if I can't make my audience laugh at the darkest parts, then I've lost them. Can you read the dedication? Sure. For my ancestors who faced terrible and portentous horrors, I've heard the stories about surviving famine and the Japanese invasion of China and how starving villagers swap children to eat. Thanks for sparing grandma. I mean, there's the, and there's like an emoji there, isn't it? Yeah, it's a smiley face. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's the dark sense of humor right there. Yeah. I mean, we were always talking about, you know, um, at least my family is always saying like, oh, grandma survived this, you know, Japanese invasion. Um, So I think I do write a lot about family mythology. um, And they always talk about how they had to swap children to eat or sell their children. And so um, I think it's just like a natural thing to joke about for me. Why did you want to dedicate the book to them? Um, I think the idea of our ancestors being present is something um, I've been thinking about, especially the idea of like immortality and ghosts. Like, are they around us? Um, Ancestor worship. Um, I don't know. I don't know if they would like this book. Maybe they would. There was something that came to mind to me when I was reading it where I thought about like, maybe if you're, if you were raised in a system in which you are not given a tremendous amount of agency. Maybe being written as a ghost 
allows you to have some of the agency that you didn't have in life. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Especially, I think, for women of color, marginalized people, you know, you have all this inherited trauma, you're, you know, leave a country and you carry all this, you know, pain and, and memories. And as a ghost, you know, you might be free. Before we go, you mentioned that you're, you don't know how your family f- feels about these books. Yeah, we don't talk about it. You don't talk about it? We don't talk about it. Um, you know, I had to move back um, home during the pandemic yeah. um, with, you know, and no one said anything about the woo-woo. No one talked about my writing career. Um, every time I left the room, you know, they would just talk about themselves. I think they're like, they're afraid of me. Are they afraid that you're going to write about them in a book or something I like think that? so. And maybe they're scared I'll talk about them. How do you feel about that? Um, at first I thought it was... Um, it was hurtful, but then I'm like, well, it's freeing, you know? Now I can say whatever I want. Because <laughs> they're not going to read it anyway. I guess not. Or if they read it, they're not going to talk about it. I will say that for, like, everything that we've talked about with regards to your family and your ancestors and, and all the writing you've done about them, the one thing that I really get from – I hope you don't mind me saying this – is, like, is a real deep sense of love for them in all everything we've talked about, you know? Like, there's a deep abiding – love I can feel for both your family and your and your ancestors in this work. Yeah, yeah. It's a very complex relationship, I think. Um, it's not always fun or beautiful, but I think it, it's there. Um, lovely to meet you. Yeah, thank you. You're off the hook. Okay, great. You got through it. I survived. Thank you for this. How do you feel? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know either how I feel. I'm in one piece. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you. I can tell you that. Yeah. Much. I know that Very sure. kind. I was going to say, like, I, I, I do know how I feel, which is that I'm very grateful to Lindsay Wong for coming into the studio and, and having a chat with us and especially reading from the book. It's called Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality. It's the new collection of short stories from Lindsay Wong, and it's out now. All right, that's it for us today. Uh, Thanks so much for streaming or downloading. If you're not subscribing or following, uh, please do that. That would be nice. Though people have been. I know I sound surprised, but I'm generally surprised by anything going well ever. But people have been. You've been listening and subscribing and telling your friends about it. Very much appreciated on on my end as we try to do something new here at at the CBC, which is... um, which is, which is fun to get to do that. I'm very honored we get a chance to do that. So thanks a lot for listening. Um, we'll be back tomorrow. All right. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.